It's very nice to be invited to do this. I'm, I'm scheduled to come teach in person at Gaia House in August, but that's going to depend on the COVID gods, I guess. But it is nice that we can meet together like this. It's, it's actually quite astounding. 20 years ago, this was not even possible. Okay, let me change back to gallery view. Okay. Because it's nice to see the people to whom I'm speaking. So the first thing we're going to do is a short guided meditation. Uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu said that his teacher told him he should not try and teach Sadama to anyone who hadn't been recently meditating. I think that's really good advice. So we're going to have about a 10-minute meditation period. So get yourself comfortable. It's more important to be comfortable when you meditate than to look good, right? If you're going to get concentrated, you're going to need to abandon the hindrances. The second hindrance is aversion. If you're uncomfortable, that generates aversion. You're not going to get to the jhanas. So... <coughs> Get yourself seated comfortably and then close your eyes and start paying attention to the physical sensations of breathing. If you can notice the sensations at your nostrils, that's very good. Either at the opening, a little bit inside, maybe on the area between your nose and your upper lip, just wherever you feel the touch sensation strongest. That's where you place your attention. You could also pay attention to the breathing at the belly or the chest, noticing the rise and the fall. If you can work with the nostrils, it works a little better because it's more difficult. Meaning that if you succeed in staying with the nostrils, you will get more concentrated because you've done a more concentrating practice, but the belly will work. And so you're just noticing the sensations. You're not controlling the breath in any way. You're just noticing what's there. Meditation is about noticing. distracted, or rather, when you become distracted, it's not a big deal. This is how our minds evolved. We are the progeny of those who paid attention to their environments, didn't get fixated on picking the berries and got eaten. If you become distracted, 
it's helpful to label the distraction. First word is always correct. Planning, worrying, wanting, arguing, nonsense. Spend zero energy trying to get the perfect word. You'll get it right most of the time. First word that comes to mind. And then relax and bring your attention back to the tactile sensations of breathing. Attitude you want is one of relaxed diligence.
Don't try and force your mind to stay with the breathing. That's not relaxed. Just be diligent about noticing when you become distracted. Relax and come back. Okay, so the jhanas. The jhanas are eight altered states of consciousness that are brought on by concentration and each yields even more concentration. This enables you, as you move through them, to step down into deeper and deeper levels of concentration. Concentration is the usual translation of the Pali word samadhi. It's not a bad translation, but concentration has this furrowed brow kind of striving thing attached to it. A better translation would be indistractability, which I'm not sure is really an English word, but never mind. The whole idea is you want to generate a mind that's less likely to become distracted. And as all of us learn when we first start to meditate, I mean, the first insight is my mind has a mind of its own. I intend to follow my breathing and it just does other things. So we need to learn to concentrate. It's reasonably good to become non-distracted if you're totally engaged with something. You're playing a game, you're having a conversation with a friend, you're watching football on TV or something. But your breath, not really all that engaging. And so we have to work at this. And what I just laid out for you are some hints for how to work with the breathing to generate some degree of indistractability, some degree of concentration. So why bother? What's the big deal? Well, the Buddha 
basically taught three things, sila, samadhi, and panya, morality, concentration, and wisdom. His basic instructions are clean up your act, learn to concentrate your mind, use your concentrated mind to investigate reality so that you can understand what's actually happening. That's what he was teaching. You can take any teaching that you find in the suttas, his discourses, and put them under one of these headings or sometimes goes under multiple headings. So learn to concentrate. Now you want right concentration, sama samadhi. Uh, that's right concentration is the usual way we translate that phrase. Um, perhaps more accurately would be appropriate indistractability. And he defines appropriate indistractability as the first four of these jhanas. So they are a method for generating a mind that can more accurately examine reality and understand what's happening. And that's why the jhanas are important. If you have a talent for concentration, it's easier to learn the jhanas. But most people, I would say about 80% of the world's population, or at least they come on my retreats, assumes that their concentration is worse than average, which of course, mathematically, doesn't make any sense at all. But yeah, you don't have to be able to put your attention on your breath and never get distracted. You just need to well, recognize when you've become distracted and bring your attention back. If you do this long enough, which may take several days on retreat of meditating six or eight hours a day, but eventually you won't get distracted anymore. You will stay with the breathing. This goes by the term access concentration. It's sufficient concentration to give you access to the jhanas. And we could define it as being fully with the object of meditation, such as the breath. And if there are thoughts, they are wispy and in the background and do not pull you off into distraction. I mean, when you first sit down to meditate, it's like, yeah, as soon as COVID's over, I'm going to Mallorca. And, and then I'm going to go to Portugal because I've heard Portugal's really, <laughs> you just got all sorts of things. Or you're arguing with your boss. That stupid thing that he told me to do. That's not going to, I mean, you all know this stuff, right? But eventually the mind settles down and you're not getting lost anymore. There might still be thoughts of, oh, this is good. I'm not getting distracted. Is this what that guy was talking about? Right. So there's still a little commentary, but it's in the background. If you're working with the breathing, you know each in-breath and you know each out-breath. You're there for the breathing. There are, it turns out, many different ways to generate access concentration. I'm talking mostly about 
using the breath as the access method. But you can use metta, loving kindness meditation. Basically, do loving kindness meditation for about half an hour. And if you're not getting distracted at that point, perhaps you'll be at access concentration. You don't have quite the same um, ability to, you know, stay with something subtle like your breathing. Uh, but yeah, metta can be used for access concentration. Any of you have studied with Mr. Gawanka and he teaches the body scan. Yeah, do a nice, slow 35, 40 minute body scan at the end. You'll probably be at access concentration. Mantras are concentration techniques and you can use a mantra to obtain access concentration. If you've studied with Ajahn Sumedho, he teaches listening to the nada sound, the sort of sound that's in your ears when there's no noise, no sound at all. You can focus on that. That'll get you to access concentration. Many different ways. The whole idea is to get your mind to a point where you're not becoming distracted. If you're using the breath, the breath will probably become much more subtle. It may even seem like it's disappeared. Probably really hasn't. All that's happened is it's gotten very subtle and you're not noticing the tactile sensation. That's okay. Just keep your attention pointed at the place where you were noticing the breath. And as long as you still know whether it's an in-breath or an out-breath, even if you can't tell how you know that, that will work. Once you've arrived at access concentration and recognize that you've arrived at access concentration, you'll want to stay there for five to 10 to 15 minutes. Your, your sense of time is, yeah, it's not very accurate by that point. Just keep doing whatever you are doing, right? If you're using the breath or a mantra or something like that, if you're doing the metta, you can't really tell. You just have to guess after half an hour or so that you're at access. If you're doing a body scan, do a complete body scan, 35, 40 minutes. And then, yeah, there's a trick. After you've been at access concentration long enough, the trick is to focus your attention not on whatever you are using, not on the breath or the metta, but on a pleasant sensation. Now, you might be wondering, what pleasant sensation? Well, if you look at the statue of the Buddha, he's always got that little wispy smile. That's not there just for artistic purposes. If you smile when you meditate, Put that fake smile on your face. Put it back when it falls off. By the time you get to access concentration, the smile will feel genuine. And you can shift your attention to the pleasantness of the smile and just focus on that. Now, that's clearly a much more subtle sensation than the breath or any of the other access meditation objects. You need to have good concentration to stay with something like the smile that's just sitting there, not doing anything, right? The most common thing 
that people find a pleasant sensation in is their hands. The smile, if it works, works really well. Unfortunately, too, too many people have been told, smile, whether you feel like it or not. And here I am, an old white guy telling you, smile, whether you feel like it or not, and you, you might not. But if, you, if the smile doesn't work, find another pleasant sensation. And the hands seem to be the most common one, sort of a warm, tingly glow there. Put your attention on the pleasantness of that sensation. If you're doing metta, then the heart center. That's probably where you're going to find a pleasant sensation. Other possibilities, third eye, top of the head, top of the shoulders, soles of your feet, you name a body part. I've had a student who's focused on the pleasantness in that body part and been able to ride it into the first jhana. So sit down, get comfortable, put your attention on your object for generating access concentration. If you get lost, no big deal. Label, relax, come back. Keep doing that until you arrive at access concentration. Stay at access concentration for a while. Then shift to a pleasant sensation. No more attention on the breath or the metta or anything. Just the pleasantness of the pleasant sensation. By the pleasantness, I don't mean its location or its strength or how long it's been there, or whether it's increasing or decreasing. It's just, well, if somebody were to ask you, is that sensation pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And you answer pleasant. How did you know it was pleasant? That's what you want to focus on. Right? And you're just sitting focused, in, focused on pleasant and enjoy it. And then comes the really hard part. Do nothing else. Just enjoy the pleasantness of the pleasant sensation. That's it. That's it. You can't actually do the jhanas. The jhanas come find you. If you have an indistractable mind that's focused on pleasantness, well, that's pleasant, which feeds a little more pleasantness into the experience. Having a little more pleasantness in the experience is also pleasant, right? Which adds a little more pleasantness to the experience. What you're doing is setting up a positive feedback loop. You know, positive feedback loop, like if this was a microphone and then I held it up to the speaker, it would make that awful noise, right? The ambient sound in the room goes into the microphone, through the amplifier, comes out louder, back into the microphone, amplified more, okay? You're trying to do the same thing, only not with noise, but with pleasure. You're getting your mind quiet enough such that you can hold your attention on pleasantness and enjoy it, such that it keeps getting more and more pleasant. If you do that, it will eventually take you into an altered state of consciousness full of, La Pali words are piti and sukha, usually translated as something like rapture and happiness, PT is a physical sensation, an uprush of energy 
rapture, euphoria, ecstasy, delight. My favorite translation is glee. So an energetic, gleeful release of physical energy, more or less. It varies from person to person. And sukha, well, that's the opposite of dukkha. Sukha is emotional sense of joy or happiness. So basically what you've done is you've sat down, got yourself concentrated enough so that you can focus on pleasure strongly and undistractedly enough that you set up a positive feedback loop of pleasure that erupts in glee and joy, rapture and happiness, piti and sukha. That's the first jhana. It's got a physical component and it's got an emotional component. But you may not, when you first experience, be able to distinguish what's what. It's just pitisuka, all one word, all one experience. It's enough of an altered state of consciousness that, yeah, you know something different happened. If you're thinking, is this the first jhana? It, it feels a little different. It's probably not the first jhana. It can come on quite strongly. It can feel like you stuck your finger in an electrical socket, right? It's, if it's really strong, it's, it'll, it'll make your hair stand on end. It'll make it vibrate. It might show up as heat. <coughs> and because of the sukha, it's pleasant. The physical energy, even if it's really strong, <coughs> has this tinge of pleasantness with it. And so we just hang out there with this altered state of consciousness. If it's really strong, you probably won't want to stay there very long. It, it has a tendency to become problematic after a while. If you, if you get in for the first time in the evening, right before bed, yeah, you're not gonna sleep for a long time. It'll give you insomnia. Um, it's, you're running a lot of energy there. If it's mild, yeah, you could stay in it for five or 10 minutes, provided, of course, you don't become distracted and lose it. The whole idea is to get this going so that you can eventually move on to the second jhana. The whole purpose of the first jhana is to get you to the second jhana. When you want to move to the second jhana, Take a nice deep breath and really let the energy out. When you do, the PT, which is predominating, will calm down. The sukha might calm a little bit, but not too much. And then put your attention on the sukha, the joy, the happiness, the emotional state. And now you've got PT in the background and you've got sukha in the foreground. So you've done a foreground background shift. And you're just focused on the happiness of the second jhana. It's, well, you're happy. It, it can be quite strong. It can be like, like it's your birthday and your friend gives you a nice present and you open it up and it's like, oh boy, I always wanted one of these. Yeah, that kind of happiness. Only 
the happiness is not being generated by external circumstances. You've just generated it with your mind. Uh, the happiness isn't out there in the external circumstances. Your football team wins the championship. The happiness that you feel is not in the football team. It's in your mind. We have these neurological circuits already up here. We just need to trigger them. Usually we need an external event to trigger them, but it's not required. Learning the jhanas, part of what goes on is you learn to trigger your happiness just by getting concentrated. They have, I have meditated for science a number of times, you know, EEG, fMRI, and they've looked at my brain as I go through these jhanas. And it looks like I'm in a very positive state of mind. I find the experience very rewarding, at least the parts of the brain that they correlate with positive mind states and reward are all lit up. And all I was doing was sitting there, you know, just breathing and paying attention. Hanging out in the second jhana is, is pretty nice. It's, it, it's much calmer than the first. Uh, the suttas talk about inner tranquility in the second jhana. You still got some sukha, the PT's in the background, whereas in the first jhana, it's pretty much the foreground thing. It's a physical experience. You're vibrating or there's heat or whatever. But at the second jhana, it's an emotional experience and your focus is on an emotion. This is quite different as a class of object from the breath, which is physical, or a mantra, which is a mental thing, but it's a sound thing. This is just an emotion that you're focused on. And you're happy. You're just joyful, right? For no particular reason other than your mind is concentrated. The background PT, instead of vibratory or heat, maybe use rock or sway a little bit, something like that. It's not a completely still state, but you're definitely much more concentrated. And the emotional sense of happiness is more subtle than any of your previous objects. The breath, yeah, a little subtle. The pleasant sensation, definitely more subtle. First jhana, yeah, nothing subtle about it. Second jhana, yeah, that happiness, you're going to need to be pretty concentrated to stay with just an emotional sense of happiness. And if you can do that, you're increasing your indistractability. You can stay in any of the jhanas after the first one, all of two through eight, yeah, for as long as you want. It's good to learn to stay there for 10 to 15 minutes. Once you're ready to move on, again, it might be helpful to take a nice deep breath, calm things down a bit. What you're looking for now is a sense of contentment, a sense of wishlessness, a sense of satisfaction that's so complete that if Mick Jagger were practicing the third jhana, he wouldn't be able to sing that song. All right, you are satisfied. 
right? It may be helpful when you make the transition from second to third jhana to take a nice deep breath again. And as you're letting the energy out, you're letting the sense of happiness just get turned down to contentment. Maybe it's helpful to remember a time when you were very contented. I don't know, you just eaten the perfect meal, you didn't overeat, and you don't have to wash the dishes. Grab a quarter second memory of what contentment feels like and focus on that. And your mind settles in to contentment. By definition, at this point, the PT is all gone, the physical component. It's very still. It's still pleasant. Being contented is pleasant. You probably have a little wispy Buddha smile. First jhana, yeah, big grin, teeth showing. Second jhana, big grin, no teeth. Third jhana, wispy Buddha smile. And again, it's much more subtle. It's just contentment. You're just contented. It's a nice place to hang out, but it's a very subtle place. And as we all learned early in our meditation careers, the mind has a tendency to get bored with anything that's not changing. And so, yeah, you wandered off and lost it. If you're in a jhana and lose it, try going back to the previous one instead of the one you were in. So if you're in third jhana, go back to the second jhana. If you can remember what the happiness felt like, and you can maybe slide back into it. If you can't, yeah, go back to working with your breath or metta or whatever and start again. So now you're hanging out in this state of wishlessness. You don't want anything. You're just happy to be there, contented. It still uses the word sukha, but sukha freed from piti, so it's a much calmer state of mind. By this point, your concentration is getting quite good, but it is possible to deepen it even further by moving on to the fourth jhana. The fourth jhana is described as a state beyond pleasure and pain. It's a state that's emotionally neutral. My teacher, Ayakema, described the third jhana as like you're sitting in the mouth of a well, just, you know, right, just down there a little bit. To get to the fourth jhana, you need to let go and drop down the well. What do you let go of? Well, as I said, the third jhana is pleasant. Let go of the pleasure of the third jhana. I find I can put my attention on that little wispy Buddha smile in the third jhana and relax all the muscles in my face. And when I do, there's a sense of things starting to sink down. And I just go with that sinking down feeling until it comes to rest. And I'm focused on quiet stillness. That's the object of the fourth jhana, a sense of quiet stillness. Often people speak of the fourth jhana as a jhana of equanimity. But if I tell you, focus on equanimity, it's like, what? What am I supposed to focus on? I mean, you can tell when you're equanimous, but it's hard to focus on it. But if I tell you, focus on quiet stillness, yeah, that's something that you can wrap your head around and stay focused on. If you do so, you will be equanimous. And now you're in a quite deep meditative state. Uh, 
sounds may seem a bit more muffled or may drop out entirely if your concentration is really good. And it's emotionally neutral. In the suttas, it describes it as mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. Right? You've reached you've reached the ultimate state of mindfulness. And what you're being mindful of is quiet stillness. This state is very restful. If you're in it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, if you come out of it, it can feel like you just had a nap, although you know you weren't asleep, but it's that restful. Most of the time, our minds are very busy, you know, thinking, thinking, thinking. When we go to sleep, either we're completely unconscious or we're dreaming. Well, now in the fourth jhana, you've arrived at a state where you're fully conscious and not much going on. It's just quiet and still. You've developed a very deep level of concentration. So now what? Well, often in the suttas, there's two ways to go. The way that's probably spoken about the most is to step out of the fourth jhana and start doing your insight practice. It says, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one directs it, inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus. This is my body made of material form, composed of the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, which is supported by it and bound up with it. This is how you do insight practice. You investigate body and mind. Now, some of you might be familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the four establishments or four foundations of mindfulness. First establishment is body. Second establishment, Vedna, that's mind, right? Third establishment, mind states, oh, that's mind. Fourth establishment, well, that's dharmas or phenomena, but most of the phenomena that are described, mind, right? The jhanas are a warm-up exercise for your insight practice. The Satipatthana Sutta is a collection of insight practices that you can do post-jhana. You can scan your body at that point. You can pay attention to the Vedana. You can examine your mind in quite a number of different ways. What's your state of mind? Are there any hindrances available coming out of the jhanas? No, you got rid of those. Are the seven factors of awakening there? Can you encourage them, explore them? This is, this is why the jhanas are so important. They set you up so that when you do your insight practice, whatever insight practice you do, you're going to do it more efficiently. You're going to get deeper insights into the nature of reality. Now, the other way you could go 
is to go to the so-called higher jhanas. Uh, they're not called jhanas in the suttas. They're called the immaterial states. Uh, by the time of the Abhidhamma, so we're talking 200 years after the Buddha's death, they took the four jhanas and the four immaterial states and put them together to make the eight jhanas. And the higher jhanas, the five through eight, are the immaterial jhanas, whereas the first four that we've been discussing are the fine material jhanas. Not that they are in themselves material, but for each of those jhanas, it says that one drenches steep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness or happiness free from rapture, etc. So you still have bodily awareness in the first four. But the next four, you have reached a state of concentration so deep that you're just not aware of your body. Now, don't go checking to see, am I aware of my body? Because then you're aware of your body, right? You just forget about your body. But if you look, it's still there. And the instructions for the fifth jhana, first thing they say is, and by passing entirely beyond all bodily sensations. Right? So you, you need to have a really good fourth jhana, a very quiet, calm mind. The fifth jhana is called, well, it's usually translated the realm of infinite space. The word realm is actually the word ayatana. Ayatana is usually used to translate as the senses. Your eye is an ayatana, but also sights are an ayatana. So it's the organ and the objects. So the ayatana of infinite space or the sensory experience of infinite space. Now, actually, at the time of the Buddha, they didn't have the concept of zero, so I doubt they had the concept of infinity, but they did have the concept of limitless or boundless. So the sensory experience of limitless space, this is very unlike anything you've ever experienced before. The instructions for getting there, all right, if you're in the fourth jhana, you may find that you've slumped over because your energy has just really dropped down. Straighten yourself up and then find something that you can imaginatively expand without limit. What Ayakema told me was get in touch with the boundaries of my being and then expand them to fill the room and then the building and then the neighborhood and just keep expanding them until I hit the horizon and keep going. It doesn't matter what you expand, the boundaries of your being. I had one student took an imaginary balloon and blew it up bigger, bigger. Uh, she followed a beam of light out further, further. People talk about riding rocket ships or taking an elevator. Find something you can imaginatively expand without limit. Keep your attention on the outer edges of the expansion. If you can do that without getting distracted, eventually a vast empty space will appear before you. Don't look for the space while you're doing the expansion. If you look for the space, you're not focused on the expansion. It won't show up. Just do the expansion. And suddenly you find yourself in an altered state of consciousness. I don't know how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon, 
but you may have seen a picture. It's a pretty amazing place. You walk up to the edge and there's just this big empty space. Well, imagine walking up to the Grand Canyon, look over the edge and there's no bottom and there's no other side. It's that big a space. It's dramatic enough so that when you arrive there, you realize, oh, that's a big space. And you put your attention automatically on how big the space is. Again, it would be good to learn, as with all of the jhanas two through eight, to stay there for yeah, 10, 15 minutes. There's a very, very tiny sense of observer, which you probably won't even notice the first few times you're there. And this vast space before you, if it's really strong, it's before you, below you, behind you. The observer is suspended in the middle of it. But you, you probably won't even notice the sense of observer. The sense of observer is getting diminished the higher the numbers go up, just like the object is getting more subtle as the numbers go up. The sixth jhana is the sensory experience of limitless consciousness. To get there, all right, you've got this vast space before you. You can't be conscious of an unlimited space with a limited consciousness. Your consciousness has to be as big as, well, what it's conscious of, right? So shift your attention from the space to your consciousness of the space. In other words, become conscious of your consciousness, become aware of your awareness. It's a sort of shifting back. And if you do this, you realize that your mind is as big as the space. That's it. You now have an infinite consciousness. In the fifth one, the big space, people who are visual describe it as maybe off-white, light gray, maybe black, no stars or anything like that, just big empty space. And now, big empty mind. There's just, well, it's dark for people who are visual. And... It's big. Your your mind is huge. There's not much more to say about it. You just have this infinite consciousness. But it turns out you're not conscious of anything. There's no content. The sense of space is long gone. If you want to move to the seventh jhana, that's the sensory experience of nothingness. So put your attention on the object of this infinite consciousness, which is nothing, and just focus on nothingness. When I make the shift at first, it's it's a small nothingness, maybe the size of a volleyball or something. And then it gets a little bigger. If I look at the edges, it gets bigger, right? Now I've got a beach ball size nothingness. Yeah, look again, it gets a little bigger still. It never gets infinite, but there's just nothing. Um, If you're visual, probably you'll see it as black, deep purple, dark blue. Maybe, maybe you'll see it as, remember the old television where you turned it to where there wasn't a station and you just had black and white static 
we all have that in the UK a long time ago. Yeah. Okay. Imagine black and black static. Right. That's you might see the seventh jhana as just this black and black static. Or you might just see, well, like going down into the basement and you hit the light switch and it doesn't work and you're trying to see what's in there and it's black and it's dark and you can tell there's nothing right in front of you. And as your eyes get adjusted, there's nothing over here and nothing over there. It's like there's nothing down here at all. That's what the seventh jhana is like. Just nothing. People who stumble into this state unexpectedly, and yes, people do stumble into these jhana states when they're just doing their vipassana, just meditating. And if you get concentrated enough and happen to trickle your mind in a direction, you could wind up in any of these states. And occasionally people do stumble into this seventh jhana, this realm of no-thingness. I know this because I've had multiple students come to me in their first interview. They were like, can I tell you about something that happened to me? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was on the three-month course at IMS, and I was just meditating away, and I fell into the void. Oh, what was that like? It was black. There was, there was nothing. It was really scary. Well, what'd you do? Oh, I went running to the teacher. Well, they tell you, oh, they, they told me to go take a shower and get something to eat. Maybe don't meditate. Like, Sound to me like the seventh jhana. I don't know. It was scary. So they go away. They learn the first six jhanas. Maybe it takes a couple of retreats, whatever. And then they come back and it's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's the sixth jhana. You got it. All right. Here are the instructions for seven. And they're like, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to go back there. No, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I give them the instructions. They go away. They come back three days later. Yeah. Yeah. This is exactly where I was before. Only this time it wasn't scary. It was only scary because they didn't know what happened. There's nothing to be afraid of because there's nothing there. And if you know you're not going crazy, then there's nothing to be afraid of. It's a great place to hang out. It's my favorite jhana. Nothing to bother me. And you have a really concentrated mind when you're there. And then the eighth jhana. The name of the eighth jhana is the sensory experience of neither perception or non-perception. Perception is a translation of the Pali word sanya. It's the ability to name things, identify things. So can you see a bird and some flowers? You look carefully, you see a bird and flowers. Yeah, people are nodding their heads. Yeah, there's no bird or flowers here. It's just colored shapes. The bird and flowers are in your mind. You took those colored shapes, you looked them up in your database of potential objects and gave it the name bird and flowers. That's Sanya. You conceptualized what you were seeing. We do this all the time. You look at me and you see these eyeglasses. No, you don't see my eyeglasses. You see pixels on your screen, right? But they have this colored shape and you conceptualize them as eyeglasses. Even if you were to see me in person, I mean, look at your hand, hold your hand up there and look at it. It's just a colored shape. That's all, right? You identify it. It's a complex color shape, more complex than the bird or the flowers. 
we do this with everything. You hear a sound and you immediately identify it as bird or airplane or truck or whatever. This is Sanya, right? This eighth jhana is, well, neither Sanya nor not Sanya. Neither perception or non-perception, neither conceptualization or non-conceptualization, neither naming or not naming. That probably doesn't help a lot to tell you what it is. It's really difficult to describe. It's a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it. And yet, you know, your mind is in a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it. That's about the best I can do. The good news is if you're good at seven, if you've got the seventh jhana really good, it's fairly easy to find eight. Just, you know, let this big nothing collapse down and see if it comes to rest in front of your face and your mind is in a state that you can't describe, but you can stay there. The eighth jhana is much more fragile than any of the previous ones. You could be in the third jhana and your one pointedness could waver a bit. You know, it, it sort of wanders off third. Whoops, back in time. Right. Even with seven, you know, there's nothing. Start thinking, start losing it. Whoops, you got back in time. With eight, <laughs> not a chance. You might have time for one simple sentence, I, me, or mine, and be able to get back to it before it's all gone. But it goes away really quick if you start thinking. Uh, I couldn't tell you the number of times I've been in eight, had a really good eight, and the next thing I know, I'm in the middle of some paragraph of distraction. No trace of the eighth jhana left. I had to go back to seven or five or whatever and start over again. So these are the jhanas. Four seems to be sufficient for enhancing your insight practice enough so that when you start investigating reality, you have a much better chance of seeing what's actually happening, understanding what's actually happening. Ayakima said that an insight was an understood experience, right? So you investigate reality and you experience reality as it is, and you have the understanding, then you have an insight. You could, after four, go on to these higher states, the purpose of which is to give you a mind that's even more concentrated, clearer, sharper, brighter, more malleable, more wieldy, more given to imperturbability, which again you use as your warm-up for your insight practice. The jhanas in and of themselves do have benefit. I mean, modern neuroscience says that if you spend time hanging out in any particular state of mind, that's going to be more your default. The jhanas are positive mind states. So time spent in the jhanas is going to basically make your default mode more positive. But that's a long-term project. You probably got to practice them for five years or more to do that. But they will enhance your insight practice as soon as you learn them. Gaining insight into the nature of reality is difficult. My computer is sitting on a wooden desk. If I had a butter knife, I could cut the desk in two with a butter knife. But it's going to be really hard, right? But if I got a whetstone and sharpened up that knife, it cut a lot faster. 
That's what the jhanas do for you. They sharpen your mind so that you have penetrating insight into the nature of reality. The bodhisattva of wisdom in the Tibetan tradition is Manjushri, who has a sword that he uses to cut the bonds of ignorance. Jhana practice is just sharpening Manjushri's sword. Of course, it doesn't cut any bonds of ignorance. You've got to go wield the sword, do your insight practice. And you don't want to make the mistake of just sharpening, because if you do that, eventually you'll have a sword and you didn't cut any bonds of ignorance. <clears throat> 